Our reading for today is Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Listen now to the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Welcome. We are um, continuing our series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, today's fruit is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to hear what you would have us hear, um, to discover for ourselves the truth of your word, and to apply this word, and so be faithful to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our reading today uh, comes just a few days before the crucifixion. And disciples ask Jesus, tell us when this will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they're asking, how is it all going to end? In response, Jesus warns his disciples about the coming persecutions and destructions But then he shifts to a series of parables um, about what we ought to do in the meantime. The disciples are not to worry about the end of the world scenarios, but rather given exhortations on how to live in the meantime while waiting. Jesus might be returning tomorrow in glory, so should we go to the mountains and pray and fast? No. He says, go and make sure 
in these parables, make sure that dinner is on time for your family. The parables highlight ordinary life. They are about eating and drinking, working in the fields, feeding your family, going to weddings, going to work, just regular life. It's about how to be faithful in our regular daily living in the real world, not an escape from the world. And so today's parable is, a, is one among a list of parables, and it's a very familiar and I know popular parable. You have probably heard preachers, including myself, offer an interpretation of this parable that goes something like this. Three servants are given varying amounts of talents in line with their abilities as determined by their master. Now, a a talent was a measure of weight, uh, maybe about 50 pounds or so, and depending on the metal, it would have different values. And based on verses 18 and 27, the word used there for money is silver, and so if we assume this was 50 pounds or so of silver, that that is an enormous sum. Uh, Scholars conservatively estimate that one talent would have been, you know, roughly 6,000 denarii, or the amount of money an average worker would make uh, working for 6,000 days. So you're talking about 15 to 20 years worth of wages, salary. That's a lot, right? So the guy who got the one talent and the guy who got the five, I mean, we're talking about a lot of, lot of money that is being entrusted here. And, and the word talent, by the way, um, is, a, is a direct loan word from the Greek. It means, the Greek word is talent, right? So it's, it's we just... We just took it right into English. And we use it, of course, to mean a broader uh, idea of you know, gifts and so on. But here, it's really just talking about the money that is being invested. Um, now, the master goes away. The two servants respond to this trust by going out. They work hard, and they double the amount that they had been given. They do this immediately because they're excited. Uh, they're thankful for the trust. And they respond to the trust of the master by being trustworthy and diligent. In contrast to the three actions of the first two servants of going, trading, and gaining, the third servant goes away, he digs, and he hides the talent, and apparently does nothing with it. The master eventually returns, and the three servants have to give an account. The first two report that they have doubled the amount that had been entrusted to them, and the master tells them the exact same words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of the master. So the guy who had five and the two, they get equal uh, praise. They get uh, equal reward. And they get additional responsibility. And it's it's all the same. The third servant, however, offers an excuse about the... Uh, the hard character of the master, and that out of fear he hid the money and returns it intact. Right? He's like Adam who, who blamed Eve, right? uh, blamed God for giving him Eve for uh, his failings. And so um, I did this because you know, you're, you're a hard man and, and I don't want to get blamed and so on. And so he's blaming the master uh, for his lack of effort. For this, he gets called out. The master says, you know, if you really believe I'm as bad as you say I am, then wouldn't you have at least put my money in the bank, right? Couldn't you have at least drawn interest? I mean, how hard is that? And you didn't even do that much. And so by his own words, he is condemned. 
and he is cast out into the outer darkness. And at this point, uh, most good preachers would apply this parable as a summons to work hard, work diligently for the kingdom of God with the talents that God has given you, whether you've been given one talent or two talents or five or a hundred talents. Do work diligently with gratefulness and double your talents, right? Like really um, develop them and use it for the glory of God. Uh, if God gives you lemons, make lemonade or lemon meringue pie or you know, plant the seeds, grow lemon trees. Like do something with what you have been given. That, that's a good interpretation of the parable and a good application of the parable. And uh, I think that's fine. However, uh, I think as American Christians, we really want to be careful that we do not read this in a way that simply affirms our lifestyles. And I think there's great danger in that. Even if we don't read this parable as, you know, you better work really hard, otherwise, you know, you're going to hell, I'm going to punish you. There is a sense in which in this parable that we are rewarded for our hard work. And there is a further danger of reading this parable as an implicit affirmation of our American economic system, the Protestant work ethic. And I've even heard sermons about this sort of affirmation of venture capitalism. You're given this money, you got to invest it and do something with it. First century listeners of Jesus did not have the same economic assumptions and realities that we have, we who live in the 21st century America. We live in a uh, very different set of circumstances than they did. Our concerns about accumulating and saving and gating our financial investments would not be shared by those who heard Jesus' parable. These were mostly peasants and slaves many of them just trying to get through the day to earn enough to have daily bread, their concerns would be different. And so in recent years, taking that into account, a number of scholars have offered an alternative reading that the master in the parable is not an allegorical symbol or is not a stand-in for God, but in fact is the villain of the parable who exploits his slaves for his own profits. Read this way, we get a very different take on the parable. Jesus regularly preached against greed and against those whose comfort and hoarding are at the expense and suffering of others. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to gain the kingdom of heaven. And so it makes sense that the rich man in a parable might be the villain. In other parables, like the one about the good Samaritan and the parable of the sower, it is the last in the series of characters that is commended. The last which produces an abundance of crop. The last man who is the hero of this story. And so maybe Jesus is calling us here to imitate the last servant rather than the first. After all, the last shall be first. So then the third servant is the one we ought to emulate. The master entrusts his talents, but behind it is this economic system of slavery and injustice, and the master who uses his slaves to turn a profit on his already ridiculously vast wealth, so much that he can call 
15 to 20 years worth of wages as a little, a trifle. He has refused to go along then, this third servant, with the profiteering of the master and instead returns to him what is owed and no more. Now, it sounds you know, kind of crazy or foolish to bury your money in the ground, but this was actually an acceptable practice of safeguarding money and to avoid the liability of theft in those days. And so for this, he knows he's going to be called lazy, wicked, and cast out, and yet he chooses this as the more faithful and honorable action. He's like the whistleblower who stands up to an unjust economic system at great cost to himself. And so maybe Jesus is telling us, when you follow me, you have to do what is good and right and just, even if it costs you everything. Even if it means you're going to get spit out of the economic machinery that you are living in. You have to stand up to unjust masters and unjust systems. For that, they will smear your reputation. You will be called wicked and lazy. You'll be ostracized. You'll be cast out. You'll be alone. And isn't this what happens to Jesus? For his righteousness, for his stand against the wicked and against status quo religion, he is cast out into the darkness of Golgotha. There he is alone and abandoned on Calvary, just like this third servant. And isn't that where and with whom we are called to stand? with those who have been cast out. This is a much more uncomfortable reading of the parable, isn't it? That suggests to me that maybe it's the one that we ought to consider more. I outlined two interpretations today, not to confuse you, uh, although maybe I did, um, but because I think they highlight two aspects of what it means to be faithful. Two different aspects. First, you know, faithfulness is defined um, typically as adhering to or uh, holding on to some, uh, some person or idea or cause. It's this sort of unwavering, uh, undeviating adherence to something, right? Um, words like loyalty, steadfastness trustworthiness, fidelity, and so on. In the Old Testament, the idea or the word faithfulness is related to the word amen, meaning, you know, certainly this is true, uh, so be it. It's solid. You can, you can stand on this. It's a rock. And in the Old Testament, the word truth is routinely translated as faithfulness. For example, uh, when God passes before Moses, um, God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, patience, abounding in steadfast love, the hesed of God, and faithfulness, or truth. Truth. Truth is a synonym for faithfulness. And, and sometimes we use that in English, right? We'll say, you know, um, he, he's, he's true to his wife, as meaning he is faithful. <clears throat> so faithfulness, truth, This reliability is who God is and what God does. God makes promises and is true to them. He enters enters into relationship with us and voluntarily binds himself to us through those promises. 
Paul says in Thessalonians 5.24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, God will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. It's just who God is. Moses says in Deuteronomy, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love, his promises to a thousand generations. And the psalmist declares in Psalm 145, the Lord is faithful to all his promises, to all his promises. God's faithfulness means that God will always do what he has promised to do. You can depend on that. You can can place your life on that. It's the amen, the truth of God. As Joshua experienced, not one, not one of all of God's promises have failed. Every single one was fulfilled. This means that even when my own life, when my personal experiences and circumstances indicate that maybe God is not being faithful to me, because I'm not experiencing that, I can continue to trust him. My faith does not rest on my personal limited narrow ranges of experiences with God. Rather, I place it on the testimony of God who throughout history has remained faithful. I'm reminded of his faithfulness in every rainbow that I see is a sign of his peace. In every word of scripture which never passes away. In every gathering of two or three in his name. In every communion table where I see the new covenant seal in his blood. And in the final, final promise he made to us, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the world. And that, that, that's faithfulness. It's this, it's this hanging on, regardless of any circumstance. And, and that's the way I think we think about faithfulness. So for us, faithfulness, it's a way of being, right? It's, it's being reliable. It's having people that you can depend on each and every day. And that's good. But in English, you know, we differentiate the idea of faithfulness, this, this sort of way of being, with faith, right? Faith, with it, we think of it as this, this thing that you have, some sort of possession, whereas faithfulness, we think of as a, a, a way of being. But in Greek, the word for faith and faithfulness is the exact same word. You could actually translate, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit, not as faithfulness, but, but faith, Now, based on context, it should be translated faithfulness, but it's the same word. It's the same word. Lewis Smeads uh, wrote something uh, that I found really profound. He said this. He said, if forgiving is the only remedy for your painful past, promising is the only remedy for your uncertain future. If forgiving is the only remedy for your painful past, promising is the only remedy for your uncertain future. I thought that was really, really helpful. I can't change the facts of my history, the facts of my past, but I can change my perception of those events and redeem those moments their influence on me by forgiving it. And so it allows me then to look at the past from a very different lens. It is a remedy for the pain of my past. Not only that, 
I can also shape my future by making promises and keeping them. I don't know if you've thought about this, but, you know, obviously we we can't um, predict the future. You know, we can't. But we can shape the quality of what that future is going to look like by making promises and keeping them. Right? This is what people do when they, when they uh, make wedding vows, for example. Uh, I was just officiating a wedding uh, last night, and I, I talked about this faithfulness, that you're making a promise, not for today, when people say, you know, I love you till death do us part and all that stuff, you know, goodness. Right? It's not for today. I'm not promising to love you today, because we know you're going to do that because it's your wedding, Right? But you're promising tomorrow, tomorrow when you're sick, and the tomorrow after that, when, when I can't stand you anymore because you refuse to take out the garbage on time, right? Each and every successive day you are promising, I will be faithful. And by keeping those promises, you become a different person. The relationship becomes different. When you make a vow to become a member of this church, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. I promise to be faithful in the future. Making promises binds us to one another. This is how we build community. You make promises to one another and you keep them. When you become a member of this church, or when you became a member of this church, the last question that you get asked is, will you be a faithful member of this congregation? And maybe I should put in, you know, will you be a faithful member of this congregation tomorrow? Share in its worship and ministry through your prayers and gifts, your study and service, and so fulfill your calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Will you, right, in the future, be a faithful member of this church? And how do you respond? I will with God's help. You make a promise to me, to the church, and before God that you will be faithful with God's help. I'm pretty sure God is helping you. I'm pretty sure God is faithful. So would you characterize your participation, your membership this year as faithful? Have you kept your promise to share in our worship and ministry Have you been praying and sharing your gifts with this body? Have you been studying and serving? If not, why not? Keep your promises. Renew your promises to God and to one another. So I think think that is a good way of thinking about faithfulness, and that's the way we primarily think about faithfulness, this dependability the way that we grow with one another, the way we bond with one another and connect by keeping promises. It's the faithfulness that helps me to keep going when life is hard. It's the faithfulness that helps me to persevere when I'm tired. And that's the way we generally think about the parable of the talents. But I think there is a second aspect of faithfulness, a faith aspect that we also must remember. And that's the faith, faithfulness, that puts me in a position of trust so that I'm willing to dare or to risk because of the faith. In response to God's grace, 
I trust God. I trust God that despite my limitations, despite my faults, I can act in faith. Whether it's a servant who must have risked their talents to to trade with what they've been entrusted, right? There's risk involved with that. Or whether it's a servant who stood up against injustice despite his fear, they all had to take this step of faith. They had to live out their faith by daring, by risk-taking. I think faithfulness requires faith. And I think that's the part of faithfulness or faith that we don't think about as often when we read this parable and when we think about faithfulness. That there is an element where we have to dare in faith and faithfulness. Mary Moffat, an early missionary to Africa, spent the first seven years without seeing any results. And a friend from England wrote her a letter asking if she needed anything. And she wrote back, yes, Send me a communion set, cup and plate. We shall need them someday. That's faith. And remember in those days, you know, you wrote a letter to England. They didn't have email, right? It takes a year to get there. They didn't have Amazon or even, you know, Amazon Prime. So it takes another year for the communion set to come to, like, it's like two years for one letter to get back and forth, right? And so by the time the communion set arrived, in those two intervening years, there had been a breakthrough, and, and they needed the communion set. That's faith. Someone said, you know, if you're going to pray for rain, carry an umbrella. That's, that's faith. Step out in faith. The one who buried the talent did nothing and gained nothing. Or if you prefer, those who served the master and kept the status quo just to keep their own jobs secure did nothing. You've got to trust God and you've got to do something in faith. In Dante's Inferno, those who play it safe, those who did nothing worthy of blame, who did nothing worthy of praise, are relegated to a place in hell where they're caught in this whirling wind forever chasing a banner that never takes a stand. Dante writes, those wretches who had never truly lived went naked and were stung and stung again by the hornets and wasps that circled them and made their faces run with blood in streaks. There's more, but... They're tormented because they never took a stand. They never took a risk. They never took a risk. They never dared trusting in the one who is so faithful. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, said that a little thing is just a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. Faithfulness And a little thing is a great thing. You can make an enormous, eternal difference by stepping out in faith. I mean, read one way in the parable, like, if you just put the money in the bank, you would have been praised. It's not a lot. It's not a big thing. It can be a big thing. You can make an enormous, eternal difference by stepping out in faith. Every one of you here, I mean, and we as a church, we have incredible, incredible, vast sums of resources and opportunities. 
Use them diligently or stand with those who are struggling. Don't just go along with the status quo. There is no sacrifice, no struggle, no self-denial, no work done in faith that will go by unnoticed by God. And every labor you do in faith is not in vain. It matters. Every prayer boldly offered, every act of service, though inconvenient, every word of encouragement to those who are struggling and stumbling, every sacrificial dollar given for his kingdom work, every act of kindness to the undeserving, every moment spent listening to the lonely, every Sunday school lesson taught, every infant held in your arms, every time you share your faith with a neighbor, co-worker, classmate, even though you're scared, every effort to fix some injustice in the community at a cost to you, every battle you fight against sin and temptation, every decision and risk you take to forgive and heal a relationship, not one act done in faith, trusting God, stepping out in faith, in faithfulness, is wasted. It is received and it will be praised. Well done. Well done. It has eternal significance because it is done in faith, in trust. You know the story of uh, William Carey who's considered the father of modern missions. When he first had the conviction of going to India as a missionary to spread the gospel, he told a group of ministers about it. And you know what they said to him? They said, sit down, young man. When God chooses to save the heathen, he will do so without your help or ours. God's going to do whatever God wants to do, and so don't make a fuss, because nothing you do is going to make a difference. No, that's a, that's a terrible excuse wrapped up in terrible theology. God has called us to act in faith. I've said over the years um, that you can't do everything, but you can do something. I guess I haven't said it often enough. <laughs> you, can do, you can't do everything, but you can do something. You can do something. And notice, you know, I I like this parable because in the parable, the master does not offer suggestions about how or what they are supposed to do. He, He leaves. Here's the talents, and he leaves. God is not going to micromanage your faith. God is not a helicopter God. He's not. He entrusts the talents to us According to our ability. He knows our abilities. Our power. And as you know, with great power comes great responsibility. In this, God gives us freedom to act. Freedom to choose to act in our own creative ways. He did not create us clones that simply obey, but each is given a gift for the whole body so that the whole body can serve God. The body needs the diversity of the ears and feet and hands. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. According to the grace that is given to us, God gives 
by his wisdom. So you don't have to wonder why someone got more gifts or talents than you, right? You can wish all you want. You know, I wish God had given me, you know, more athletic body so I can dunk a basketball and I can glorify God that way. Well, yeah, you could have, but no. God's wisdom said no. You're not going to do it that way. God gave you what God gave you. And you've got to figure out, how can I use this? What can I do with this? This gift that I've been made a steward of. It's not mine. I've been made a steward of it. How can I best use what I've been given? Paul says, if it's in service, then serve. If it's in teaching, then teach. If it's in leading, then do it with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You've got to figure out, what can I do to contribute to the body? How do I work out my own faith, faithfulness to this body? And, and I know that each and every one of you here, you have gifts that this body needs for its work and for its health. And so we, we need to trust and to not only live out a faithfulness, but to live that faithfulness out in faith. Now we're going to hear from uh, Brian and Angelina, who've made the decision to join uh, this body, to commit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the ministry of this congregation. And so um, if you guys could come up. Brian, Angelina. Are you, oh my goodness. What happened? on my phone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian. My story begins in the West Coast, the better coast, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. I grew up in the suburbs of LA in a city called Arcadia. Surprisingly, some of you actually know where that is. Others might know it as a city where, uh, with the famous soup dumplings uh, called Din Tai Fung. Um, yes, it's more famous than Zhou Shanghai. But for me, it was home for many years. Church was no stranger to me. I, I attended with my family for as long as I can remember. We went to Korean church for many years, and then for reasons unknown to me, we switched churches, I think, during my third grade, um, and continued at this church uh, throughout high school for me. My parents actually still attend this church today. Um, I first encountered Christ during high school. There wasn't much to it. There were no bells or whistles. No lights or cameras, no music or fireworks. It certainly wasn't Instagram-worthy. It was at a high school church retreat in the woods where the natural beauty of God's creation was abundant. But after a prayer-filled morning, I could feel Christ's presence filling me with love, joy, and kindness. After that, God guided me towards a little town called Ithaca, New York, uh, at Cornell. For those of you who have visited this campus, it is beautiful. But it wasn't just the natural beauty of this place that drew me towards it. It was actually a campus ministry, a fellowship uh, called Grace Christian Fellowship. 
uh, there I was able to grow as a person in Christ. I, and I also started dating my wife there. <laughs> uh, after graduating, uh, she moved to New Brunswick, and I moved. Uh, well, I went to med school in Long Island. Um, it was a good two-hour drive each way, but I probably made that drive almost every other week. Um, we started looking for churches together and visited a few. I finally Googled Korean church near me and came across the old uh, Korean church uh, we were once affiliated with. Uh, it then led us to Graceway, or Praise as it was called then. We attended for a few years and eventually became members. But even as members, we were fringe members at best. For me, a lot of it was the distance, or at least that's what I used as my excuse. After graduating, uh, we married and moved to the city. Uh, We sold both our cars and became complete urbanites. Uh, We went to many different churches in the area before finally settling on Redeemer. Uh, But it never really became our church. Uh, After finishing my residency, uh, we moved to Boston for a year, and again, we had a very difficult time finding a church. Uh, We were not really invested in it, uh, partially because we knew that um, there was a short expiration date since my fellowship was only a year long. Um, But as I started to search for my job, it was never really my intention to even look at jobs in New Jersey, Uh, but I began my job search in L.A. I went on a couple interviews, and um, none really excited me. I even got a couple. um, I actually got an offer out there, but decided not to take it. So towards the end of my uh, search, I applied for three jobs in New Jersey, and I got three interviews and actually two job offers relatively quickly. Even though I thought our path was to move back to L.A., God brought us back here. God was telling uh, us to move back to New Jersey. Although I don't know yet the specifics um, or what really my gifts are, I know it was to grow and to serve. That's it. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Angelina. So there were two questions, and uh, the first one is uh, how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. So for me, I think um, it's hard for me to pinpoint to a specific time at which I became a believer. Um, I grew up in a Christian family. I went to Christian schools um, from kindergarten all the way to eighth grade. I guess for me, Jesus was a given. Jesus was always there guiding me all along. Um, Jesus was there when my parents left me in Indonesia to study in the U.S., He gave me grandparents, aunts and uncles, a lot of cousins, a really big family who basically raised me. Um, He was there in eighth grade when I sat in the car in Jakarta standstill traffic. I was scared for my life as uh, people were protesting around uh, around me. They were protesting the government. Um, People were rioting and burning down churches and schools. Um, But he protected me. He protected me and my family. Jesus was there when I moved to Houston, Texas, because it became unsafe for me to go to school. Um, he was there when I went to, um, he gave me guardian, fa- guardian parents, um, family friends who I barely even knew before, uh, who graciously welcomed me to their home. Jesus was there when I moved to Los Angeles halfway through high school. He was there when I went to college in Ithaca, New York, um, when I met this guy. <laughs> he gave me a fellowship to be a part of, a community of brothers and sisters who are still there today. Jesus was there when I moved to New Jersey the first time, guiding me to Graceway or rather praise back then. 
Jesus was there apartment after apartment in New York City when we moved to Boston with our newborn baby. He gave me my mom to live with us to help us around. Jesus was there when we moved yet again this past July, (laughs) this time full circle back to New Jersey, and this time for good, or at least for a little while. Jesus was and is always there. He guides me, he loves me, and he provides for me. Even though I move around so much and nowhere is quite home, Jesus feels like home to me. Um, The second question was about how you arrive at your decision to become a member. Um, For me, I want to be part of Graceway, to be a part of a community, a body of Christ. I want to give to this body, help it grow, and grow with it as well. Even though I was a little nervous when we stepped through the front doors this past July, I knew that God led us back here. And honestly, it felt like we never left, um, except that there are a lot more babies and kids now. Um, I thank you all for graciously allowing me and my family to be a part of your church. Um, Some of you may remember, um, I hope some of you at least remember them when they were here years ago. Um, I remember before they got married, I thought, you know, Brian was like so in love with our church.